Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Um, Yeah. 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 Great episode. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for, thanks for uh, tuning in, everybody. Thanks. Uh, shortest one ever. Yeah. Uh, minute. Yeah. Or but, l- less than a minute. Uh, but powerful. If you include the loons, it was probably a minute. <laughs> I always include the loons. If you don't include the loons, we're not here. Ayo. Fantastic. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's not a violent crime this time. Well, we'll get into that. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in crime and the darker side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. with episode 39 of Dark Poutine. Thanks to our regular subscribers and welcome to our new listeners. We appreciate that you're filling your ears with our Dark Poutine. Oh, we were... Ex- we're, we're over the moon. We're over the moon. Yeah, that that was not what I was going to say, but it was much better. You were going to say ecstatic. I, I think I was going to say that, and then I'm like, I think I say that a lot, so I was trying to find and scramble for something else in my little pea brain. We're chuffed. I don't know what chuffed means. It means excited. Yeah. Oh, then hella chuffed. There you go. This week, we're staying in Nova Scotia for this episode. Um, not actually. Like, we're not there. No, but uh, what happened took place there. Correct. And it's about a disaster rather than a crime. So another Nova Scotian disaster. I guess the only disasters in Canada happen in uh, in Nova Scotia. I hadn't thought about that, but... Uh... Because we did the Halifax explosion, yeah, yeah. and now, well, actually, we did the the slides, which took place in in BC and Alberta. Yeah, but if you're looking at the scale of like fatalities, if you look at the yeah, Nova Scotia is kind of the winner. It's the hotbed. Yeah. Of uh, yeah. If you're somebody who works in aviation or has a family member that does, or you have a real fear of flying, this may not be the episode for you. Yeah, absolutely. At 10.31 p.m. Atlantic time on September 2nd, 1998, Swiss Air Flight 
111, a seven-year-old McDonnell Douglas MD-11 on its way to Geneva, Switzerland from New York, crashed into the ocean five nautical miles, that's eight kilometers, southwest of Peggy's Cove. Yeah, I, I remember this, but uh, somewhat vaguely. There were 215 passengers Jeez. and 14 crew on board. All 229 souls were lost. That's terrible. It is not fun. No. Numerous friends and families lost loved ones in the tragedy as well. First responders, investigators, air traffic controllers, airline officials, and residents of the small Nova Scotia communities on the South Shore were traumatized by an event that 20 years later is still fresh in some of their minds. Yeah, and not this case, but I even I remember watching a PBS documentary on the Lockerbie bombing, mm -hmm. and the whole program was a family member. I guess his, I think it was his brother who was on there, and he just tried to pursue into it. And I bring it up because you can really see the powerful impact it has on the family members and friends of these poor victims. Right. So you've got two hundred. And 30, uh, how many was it? 200 and... 229. 229 uh, poor souls, but the impact of that is, is so immense, it's, it's quite tragic. Carol, my wife and I even had our own close brush with this particular event, and we'll share more about that later. Just after 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time at JFK Airport, just outside New York City, the flight crew, Captain Urs Zimmerman and co-pilot Stephen Lowe, entered the cockpit of Flight 111. They were there to begin their pre-flight checks for what should have been a routine red-eye flight to Geneva, Switzerland. Hmm. They were both experienced pilots. Zimmerman, the captain, he was 49 and father of three. He had a total of 10,800 flying hours, including 900 on the MD-11s alone. Oh, wow. He'd also flown DC-8s, DC-9s, MD-80s, and Airbus 320s, so he's flown a lot of big planes. Lowe, the co-pilot, was 36 and also a father of three. He had 4,800 flying hours total and 230 on the MD-11. Wow. So experienced. Experienced guys, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, that night... Urs Zimmerman turned the reins over to Stefan Lowe. He was going to be pilot flying, or PF. The captain was supporting him as pilot non-flying, or PNF. Okay. I'm going to learn a little bit about aviation as we go. Yeah, well, you know, learn what we can. Not a lot. I won't get into... Uh... <laughs> so I, I won't be a certified there, pilot? There will not be math, Scott. Whoa! <sighs> Lucky you. Thank God. So Lowe was responsible for the actual control of the aircraft, and Zimmerman was to handle the navigation and radio traffic. Zimmerman was turning 50 years old the next day, and his family were waiting for him at home. They'd made reservations at their favorite restaurant for the evening. Mm -hmm. Renee Oberhansley was the head of the flight crew, as Swiss Air calls the position Matra de Cabine, or Mater D kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He was responsible for flight attendants Irene Batrizi, Raphael Burkle, Annie Castioni, Colette Furter, Serena Pazeller, Janine Pompili, Peter Schwab, Florence Zuber, Bridget Wipraktiger, Regular Rutman, and Patricia Eberhardt, who was a Delta Airlines employee. However, as Flight 11 was a Delta code share with Swiss Air, she was working this flight on behalf of Delta. 
Flight 111 was also 24-year-old Regula Ritterman's first flight ever since she'd recently completed her training as a flight attendant. Mm. Interestingly, Patricia Eberhardt mm -hmm. was the aunt of one of our Yumberyarders. Get out of here. Yeah, Christine. She sent me some messages about her aunt, yeah. shared some information, and we'll share that near the end of the show. I know who Christine is. Wow. Jeez, yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. Most of the passengers will likely put their heads on a travel pillow and sleep for the majority of the nearly eight hour trip. Mm. Yeah. Almost a full night's sleep for those who can sleep on a plane. I yeah. really, I can't. I have trouble sleeping on planes. Uh, I can. You can. Well, I mean, I used to commute, what, th we used to commute like three hours a day. I got used to sleeping on a wobbly train, so I, yeah. I have no problems on a plane. Flight 111 was used heavily by the United Nations employees as a bus between responsibilities in New York and their homes in Europe. Oh, okay. It was nicknamed Uno Shuttle. There were a few on board there that night as well, mm -hmm. uh, UN employees. Oh, no. The passengers on the plane that night were from Afghanistan, Canada, Morocco, China, France, Germany, Greece, India, Iran, the U.S., Israel, Italy, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, the former Yugoslavia, and Switzerland. Oh, wow. So the impact of this was quite spread. It's global. Yeah. Uh. Over half of those on board, 136, had U.S. citizenship, including the Delta crew member, mm -hmm. Patricia Eberhardt. Carrying human beings from place to place was not the only purpose of Flight 111. According to Stephen Kimber's book, Flight 111, The Tragedy of the Swiss Air Crash, he says, quote, in addition to passengers' personal luggage, the plane was being filled with more than 14 metric tons of freight, mm. from textiles to spare parts for automobiles, 440 kilograms of mail, and hundreds of kilograms and millions of dollars worth of art, diamonds, watches, jewels, gold, currency, and artworks. Wow, that's quite the uh, storage. It is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, perhaps surprisingly, a version of Picasso's Le Pientre, uh, valued at $2.2 million Canadian, wasn't specifically packaged for shipping. It was simply inside a wooden frame and stowed with the rest of the general cargo. Wow. Most of the other valuables, however, were handled with greater care. The manifest showed that the plane's valuable case, a special four-foot-high aluminum container with reinforced walls, a lock door, and a metal seal, contained a diamond from the recently completed Nature of Diamonds exhibition at the American Museum of Natural History, hmm. which was being shipped back to its owner in Europe. Along with that, 49.8 kilograms of banknotes designated for a U.S. bank in Geneva another kilogram of diamonds, and 4.8 kilograms of assorted jewelry. Wow, it's quite uh, staggering. Yeah, so there was quite a bit of uh, of valuables on that plane. Yeah, a human and material loss out of that. Absolutely. Although one greatly outweighs the other. So that's end quote. That thank you to Mr. Kimber for being so diligent about giving all the information yeah. about that. His yeah. books are quite good. I've read a, a couple of them on Flight 111. Just before takeoff, the safety demonstration led by Rene Oberhansley was completed in three languages, English, German, and French, because it's a Swiss flight. Yep. With safety checks completed, the flight left a gate at JFK, at 7.53 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And they were in the air at 8.18 Eastern Daylight Time. So about 20 minutes on the tarmac and yeah. taxiing and stuff. Seems pretty normal. They headed into the evening sky and out over the Atlantic for what should have been just another routine flight between JFK and GVA. 
At 40 minutes into the flight, Er Zimmerman contacts Air Traffic Control Center in Moncton, letting them know that Flight 111 has reached their cruising altitude of 33,000 feet. All seemed well at this point. Yeah. At 10.10 p.m. and 38 seconds, to be exact, Very Atlantic Daylight Time, the pilots were eating their dinner. The cockpit's voice recorder picks up a conversation between Lowe and Zimmerman. Lowe says he smells something strange in the cockpit. Zimmerman doesn't respond at first, but 20 seconds later says, look, it's assumed he spotted smoke. Mm. Mm. Lowe asks if he can look around and try to figure out what's causing the smoke in the cabin. Zimmerman agrees. Lowe stands up, searching the cabin. Lowe says he can find nothing more around the ceiling above the cockpit. Zimmerman summons the flight attendant working in first-class cabin. When she arrives, he asks her if she can smell smoke. She says she can, but she couldn't smell anything unusual in first class, so it's, it's limited to the, to the pilot's cockpit at this point. Mm -hmm. The flight attendant leaves as Lowe continues his search. Zimmerman asks whether the smoke was coming from the air conditioning. Lowe says yes, tentatively. It's so uh, unnerving hearing just these fairly innocuous conversations, but knowing yeah. the outcome, it's just very un unsettling. Well, where, where it starts to lead, yeah. Yeah, very unsettling. At 10.13 Atlantic Daylight Time, the smoke becomes visible again. It's clear that something is wrong and there may be a fire on board. Hmm. Zimmerman and Lowe consider an unscheduled landing and evaluate suitable airports, as not every airport is suitable for the more than 200-ton MD-11, Weather conditions are discussed as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Zimmerman comments, that's not doing well up there. So more smoke, we yeah. assume. Yeah. At this point, other than the pilots and flight crew, passengers beyond first class would have no idea that something was wrong as the smoke and fire was contained in the cockpit. Jeez. Mm, At 10.14, Zimmerman attempts to contact Moncton Air Traffic Control, but is squelched out by another aircraft on the same frequency. Mm. Moncton asks them to say again. Here's actual audio of what was said next. And so, to repeat, due to the captain's accent, okay, yeah, Swiss Air 111 Heavy is declaring pan, pan, pan. We have a uh, smoke in the cockpit, a uh, request, deviate, immediate return to uh, a convenient place, I guess, uh, Boston. Hmm. In radio telephony, pan, pan is the international standard for urgency. Oh, okay, okay. It's used when a situation is urgent, but not yet considered life-threatening. So, uh, pre-SOS. Yeah, well, pre-Mayday. Yeah. Mayday is the call that indicates imminent loss of life or control of the vessel or yes. craft. Yes, Zimmerman calls the flight heavy, indicating they have just taken off or are carrying over a certain amount of weight, typically in fuel, and may not be able to land safely without lightening the load, mm -hmm. especially at smaller airports. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. It's quickly determined through discussion with air traffic control that Halifax is a better bet for landing as Boston is 300 miles behind them and Halifax is 20 to 30 minutes away. Okay, yeah. The pilots put on their oxygen masks as smoke begins to fill the cabin. Oh, boy. Lowe takes control of the aircraft again. 
They turn toward Halifax and begin descending as air traffic control in Halifax takes over. At 10.20 p.m., the flight crew announced to the passengers that they should prepare for unscheduled landing in Halifax in 20 to 25 minutes. <laughs> Pilots wanted to descend quickly as the smoke was thickening and was impairing their visibility. Zimmerman and Lowe discussed dumping fuel over the ocean to make for a safer landing. The pair agreed this would be best. Halifax Tower and Zimmerman then discussed the options for dumping fuel. Cabin power is cut to prevent further spark or for possible fire. Yeah, okay. So if you're in the cabin and you're a passenger, now all of a sudden you're in the dark. Oh, okay. So now now the passengers are going to start noticing. Something's up. Yeah. At 10.24, autopilot is disengaged and Zimmerman chimes in to indicate that they are flying manually. However, only moments later, he states that they are now declaring an emergency. Oh man, my anxiety is climbing. Here's the last minute and 20 seconds of audio with Swiss Air 111 before they become unreachable. Oh no. Uh, Swiss Air 111, at the time we must fly manually. Are we clear to fly between uh, 11,000 and 9,000 feet? Swiss Air 111, you can block between uh, 5,000 and 12,000 if you wish. That last bit of unintelligible audio came at 10.25. Was that intense or was that... Holy shit. Because it, it, it all sounds so calm, but you know... You could hear that alarm in the background, which is the warbler for the autopilot being disengaged. Yeah. It's unusual to be flying and have the autopilot disengaged, so you typically won't hear that warbler going off. Well, and just, again, how calm the pilot was, how calm the air traffic controllers everybody is so calm but you you know it's nothing but panic and uh fear and just this absolute terror in that cockpit and by that point absolutely in, in the passenger cabin like oh god it's intense even though it's so so and, so calm it's so intense and by that time the heat and smoke would have been growing in the cockpit as well maybe they would be able to to visualize the fire at this point so that end of that uh recording that is the impact no time so no, that's, okay that's four minutes before the impact time so that was the last communication that's the last communication they had with so them. i'm imagining them electronics were shut down because of the fire probably like just all Exactly. Disconnect. Oh, God. I just watched uh, that movie, Sully. Yeah. Like, just the other day. And so, like, the uh, I'm visualizing the intensity of when that was all 
mm-hmm. going down and stuff. And also the Denzel Washington. Yes. Yeah. Flight. That was really good. Yeah. This was the last anybody would hear from the crew of Swiss Air 111. Oh, boy. Numerous vain attempts were made to reach the struggling airliner over the next five minutes. At 10.30 p.m., the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax determined they'd lost Swiss Air 111. They'd lost contact. It was time to scramble rescue planes and helicopters to begin the search for the aircraft. And here's a bit more audio of what was going on. What do you have for last position on when you lost? Uh, down just around St. Margaret's Bay. St. Margaret's Bay, eh? Well, we're just keeping an eye. We're hoping he's going to pop up here again, but... Okay. We should be able to see him on our just our prime display, and we're not getting anything right now. Just a second. I'll see if I can get a... But the bearing off the Halifax view are 39.7 miles, which makes it just down in St. Margaret's Bay. Okay. Then you're not talking to him anymore? No, we're not talking to him, and we don't see him. He was dumping fuel last we heard. So there you go. Oh, man. At 10.31 p.m., residents in St. Margaret's Bay, Peggy's Cove, and the islands nearby like Tancook and Ironbound first heard, then some saw, a low-flying large-body aircraft overhead between 800 and 1,000 feet. Hmm. It was heading toward the ocean. The plane was tipped in an extreme angle and in no way resembled normal flight. Those who saw it knew they were witnessing a tragedy unfolding. Oh, man. The voice recorder died in the last few minutes of flight due to a loss of power and no source of backup. It's surmised that the pilots, now on oxygen, had a smoke-filled cabin with zero instrumentation as the power was cut by the fire. Mm. And add to that the darkness of nighttime, the pilots were essentially flying blind. Oh, man. No one knows for sure what the last few seconds of flight were like in the passenger cabin. After investigation, it was noted that only one passenger, a pilot himself, had donned a life jacket. Hmm. One hopes that the passengers of Flight 111 had no idea of the actual danger they were in. Oh, I hope so. At 10.31, Atlantic Daylight Time, Swiss Air 111 slammed into the Atlantic Ocean. And so let's take a breath with this one. Yeah, jeez. Jet fighter pilots are trained to withstand between 6G and 9G. These are G-forces, like one gravitational. Yeah. The average untrained civilian will likely lose consciousness at 7Gs. Mm. According to the later report from the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, Swiss Air 111 hit the water with a force of 350 Gs, meaning everybody on board would have died instantly from a combination of G-force and deceleration injury. Jeez. Well, I would imagine, so if you lose consciousness at 7Gs, they problem. I would imagine everybody's lost consciousness before impact. Well, the impact happens at 350Gs. It's, but I'm imagining beforehand, like before it's hitting there, it's, it's got to be above 9Gs. I don't know. I would imagine. I don't want to speculate. I'm just, I'm just hoping for the passenger's sake, like that they weren't uh, uh, panicking those last few seconds. First on the scene were mostly fishermen and boaters, locals, Mm -hmm. rushing to the crash site in hope of picking survivors from the cold Atlantic waters. A lot of people described hearing like a thunderous boom and their houses shaking when the, the plane hit the water. 
Well, it would be in many regards the same as, as a missile because if it's sure. it, as long as it hasn't come apart too much, it's it, that the impact as we've 350 G's is quite significant. It's significant for sure. The scene they were met with was horrific. Pieces of plane, personal belongings, and passengers were everywhere, scattered over a hundred square kilometer debris field. Jeez. Eventually, yeah. Coast Guard and naval vessels also responded, and helicopters were called in as well to aid for the search for survivors from the air. Divers went to work at daybreak. Mm. As the naval vessel HMCS Preserver was on site, most of the smaller vessels were told to depart, leaving officials to ensure rescues, mm, okay. if any were possible. Yeah. They could be performed as safely as could be with the professionals. Yeah, absolutely. Them. Makes sense. However, it quickly became clear that this was now a salvage effort and the boats were called back to assist with the collection of even the tiniest piece of floating debris. Mm. Both to assist with the investigation and to ensure that the loved ones of passengers and crew would recover the personal belongings and remains of those who died on the flight. <sighs> wow. The reactions of grief and shock around the world are immediate as people from so many different nationalities had perished. Mm -hmm. Many of the first responders and locals who stepped in to help later reported symptoms of PTSD after having seen what they did at the site near Peggy's Cove. Yeah, that was my immediate thought uh, about them. And same with the air traffic controller. I would imagine there's some, you know, there's got to be PTSD there. A friend of mine is an air traffic controller, and if you are involved in an incident, yeah. you are pulled. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not because they think you're at fault. It's because, well, they still have to investigate, but it's also because for your sanity. Yeah. I don't think it's possible to be a part of something like that and come away undamaged. No. Here's a piece of a story from a CBC about one fisherman's account 20 years later. Quote, Bob Conrad had dozed off after a long day of fishing, but woke up to the sound of a newscast saying an incident had happened near Peggy's Cove, where he had been fishing earlier that day. I knew that my fellow fishermen would be there and that I needed to be there, said Conrad, who could smell the jet fuel before he got to the scene. On the water, he spotted what he thought was a doll, but when he got closer, it was a child, he said. My mind has not been able to retain the sight. And I'm ever thankful for that, said Conrad, who brought the child's body aboard his boat. Another fisherman who assisted was interviewed by CBC in the days following the crash. Here's some of the powerful audio of him describing what he saw, thought, and felt at the time. On the way out, I was saying to myself, why, why am I here and what, what, whatever can I do? Uh, you know, you see... Uh, broadcast of such tragedies in other parts of the world, and I had some idea of what it might be like, but really didn't know what to expect. And, uh, and I tried to justify doing this. This seemed to be a, a, a funny thing to be doing because it was so, so, uh, so tragic. And I, I found myself saying, as a fellow human being, if I can just find one person and give them the dignity of being near them in death because I had concluded that no one could survive what had happened out there. Uh, as I neared the, the accident scene, I could hear uh, my fellow fishermen uh, talking with the preserver and uh, being, being instructed as to what to do. And, and that's one thing I was very, very pleased and proud of, is the professionalism of the 
the people who are conducting that uh, that search and rescue activity, uh, both the volunteers and the professional people. Uh, it was it was done as it ought to be done and, and very effectively, but it was just dealing with such a massive uh, destruction. It was it was hard to deal with, but you know we knew that there were only basics that we could provide, and that is uh, scan the seas uh, that we knew and and uh, report what we found and hopefully find a survivor. That was the that was the ultimate reason for being there. To view the absolute destruction that had taken place, the, the, the disintegration, the impact must have been incredible. And so you just move gingerly about uh, watching the other craft and, and, and scanning the, the, the water to see what what possible assistance you could give or recover in terms of the, the uh, victims. Shit. So uh, there you have an eyewitness account of what the, the crash site actually looked like. And I like that he refrained from getting into too much detail. I've I've read some other things that get into a lot of detail if that's what you're looking for. I'm not going to get into it much here. It, it, I don't think it, it helps our story at it, all. It's not integral to the story. It, and I've heard from other crashes, bombings and whatnot, yeah. and some details from stuff like that, and it's not it's not needed here. According to a Global TV article, approximately 2,800 people were involved in the recovery, and some 200 divers ventured 55 meters below the ocean surface in search of human remains and parts of the aircraft. Mm, wow. Many of the remains were mere pieces that would have to be identified through dental records, DNA, fingerprinting, and other means. Jeez. Yeah. Dr. John Butt, Nova Scotia's medical examiner, was hit particularly hard. Oh, I imagine. He headed up a group consisting of RCMP officers, pathologists, dental experts, radiologists, DNA experts, and more who were tasked with sifting through the 15,000 body parts that were recovered at the crash site and ensuring that they got to the families they belonged to. Wow. It's incredible work and work that needs to be done, and these guys are champions for doing it, but man, how difficult must that be? Judith Buckley, a dental assistant with the Canadian Armed Forces, later wrote a book about her PTSD recovery after being involved in IDing the many partial remains of victims of Flight 111. From her book, Eye of the Storm, and I warn you, this is pretty graphic. A partial torso was recovered, and my assignment was to assist in removing the dental remains still attached. As I approached the door to the room, my heart sank, and the pit of my stomach filled with horror. I was dazed and stood in shock. I can still barely recall the disfigurement of the head, but I do recall seeing body hair, and then it hit me. This is a real person. These are not movie props. I shut off at that instant. I waited as they cut the small amount of the remaining jaws, and then I held out my hand as a piece was handed to me to begin the x-raying process. I became an emotional zombie. End quote. Oh, God. So this is, you know, what she had to do day after day. Yeah. And this is what those people had to endure day after day to make sure that um, the victims were properly identified and their remains were properly dealt with. Yeah, and, and this is exactly the impact uh, of disasters. You have the victims, uh, the ones who were uh, on the plane, but the spread uh, of the people impacted by it is incredible, and we don't often think about them. No. The investigation kicked into high gear as well. 
they wanted to recover as much of the plane as possible, but many of the large pieces lay scattered under over 50 meters of water, making recovery pretty arduous. Mm-hmm. The flight data recorder, or black box, was not found initially. Extra help was required. As our last mission, the HMCS Okanagan, a naval submarine on her way to be scrapped, lent her sonar to finding the flight data recorder and other crucial parts of the plane. Hmm. The cockpit voice recorder was found 55 meters underwater. Investigators went right to work analyzing the tapes and were disappointed to find the crucial last few minutes were not there, as we mentioned previously. Hmm. On September 9th, 1998, a service took place for the 229 passengers at Indian Harbor near Peggy's Cove. Many of the family members of the victims had been flown in by Swiss Air for the event. Hmm. This is where my wife Carol and I have personal memories of the tragedy. We'd been married on August 29, 1998, three days before the plane crash in my hometown in Bridgewater, only 40 minutes down the road from Peggy's Cove. Mm -hmm. At the time of the crash, we were in Charlottetown, PEI, but uh, we were immediately taken in with the story that was all over the news. Yeah, I bet. When we arrived at Halifax Airport preparing to take our flight back home to Vancouver, we noticed news crews from all over, like CNN, doing their live feeds from the airport. Mm -hmm. We checked in and went to our terminal, and the Nova Scotia Premier, Russell McClellan, was standing there at our terminal. Mm. As we looked around, we noticed there were priests, ministers, rabbis, imams, nuns, and other well-dressed folks holding bags of stuffed animals. A few moments later... We saw a jet with the Swiss air symbol pull up to the gate we were about to leave from. A couple of minutes pass as they make sure the gate's secure, and we see people emerging from the flight looking stunned. And they're mm-hmm. greeted by the, the premier and these ministers and other support staff that are there. And, and little kids are being given these stuffed animals and, oh and all that kind of stuff. Uh, <sighs> these were the families of the victims of the crash being brought in to go to Peggy's Cove and participate in this uh, memorial. Oh, my heart. The usual bustle of the terminal, like, obviously came to a standstill. It was, like, dead quiet in there. I bet. And I remember thinking how quiet it was and, and looking at the bewildered faces of these kids who were way too young to understand the loss of a parent or loved one. Oh, good God. Yeah. So this was our experience. So... Right around our wedding anniversary, we always kind of think about that. Uh, I bet. Yeah, that would be a a memory to stick with you. For sure. In an interview, Dr. John Butt, the medical examiner, gave to Global TV around the 20-year anniversary just last week. He talks about having to break some bad news to these people at a private information meeting. Hmm. Here's some audio of that interview. I mean, the first contact that I had with families was on uh, on the Friday evening of that week. And uh, then we got on the stage and we were faced with this group of, of relatives of about, the audience must have been about 600 people in the room. And then uh, everybody had a piece to say and I was the last person. And uh, I, I honestly did, can tell you that at the time that I stood up, I didn't know what I was going to say because I only had one thing to say. So I said it. And that was, I'm sorry to tell you that um, you will never see any of your loved ones again. And uh, that was the, um, 
that was a very uh, heavy-duty piece of information. And the strength of the people in the room was actually remarkable because there were um, maybe three, four people who cried out audibly, but um, the rest of them were just in silence. So there you have uh, Dr. Butts. Wow. One thing I'm noticing in all of the interviews is you can just hear how, how somber their voices. Like it, they they have you, a certain amount of reverence around. The, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. You you can you can hear it. Oh, wow. All told, thirteen hundred and seventy DNA samples were processed. Two hundred and twenty-eight profiles were completed. Apparently, there was one full body that was still able to be visually identified, and that was only one. It wasn't until the middle of December, three and a half months later, that at least some of the remains from each of the passengers had been ID'd. But there was still more work to do. So 229 people had been ID'd in some way, but all of their remains had not yet been identified. Mm-hmm. So Wow. Yep. <sighs> Speculations about pilot error were rampant for a while. Why did he turn out over the ocean and dump fuel instead of heading directly to the Halifax airport? You know, the armchair aviationists went into great detail about how he should have just gone to Halifax. It's always so easy when you're not involved. Yeah. As part of the investigations, flight simulations mirroring conditions inside the cabin with this specific type of plane proved conclusively that the crash would have happened inland prior to the pilots being able to make it safely to the YHZ mm. runway. Mm. plane would have crashed probably in a big ball of fire and perhaps more than 229 lives could have been lost. There's a lot of residential area around there. Very much like the Lockerbie. Exactly. There were some other interesting theories as well. One inspector even told the Fifth Estate in an episode that he believed that the flight was down due to arson by way of incendiary device. What? He felt strongly that the case should have been treated as a homicide of 229 people. What? Yeah, there's a whole episode of the Fifth Estate on it. I'm not going to get into whether I feel it's credible or not, but clearly the TSB didn't feel that it was credible because that has not happened. Their evidence points elsewhere. What was his belief that one of the pilots... No, it was a belief that somebody had planted an incendiary device on the plane that led to its uh, going down. Yeah, okay. The plane had been meticulously pieced back together by investigators in an aircraft hangar. To aid with recovery efforts, a ship called the Queen of Netherlands was brought in, and she was equipped uh, with sort of a huge vacuum cleaner that sucked up everything from the seabed of the debris field, water and all. Mm Mm-hmm. The wreckage was then sorted out of tons of mud and boulders, being a tedious and time-consuming job. It did pay dividends, however. According to TSB Canada's reports, approximately 98% of the aircraft measured by weight was recovered. Wow. From the examination of the pieces of wreckage, it was determined that a fire had occurred in the forward overhead area of the cockpit. Portions of the front section of the aircraft were reconstructed to allow a thorough analysis of potential ignition sources and to assess how the fire propagated. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? 98%. 98%. That is staggering. From the ocean floor. Yeah. The investigation cost the Canadian government $57 million. It appeared a few complex elements led to the disaster, so I'll simplify here. 
a segment of the newly installed in-flight entertainment network's power supply cable, the type of cable used and its proximity to another electrical component caused an arcing event, Mm. thus sparking a fire in the ceiling above the pilots. The fire took hold the way it did due to the type of insulation used in the plane at that time Mm. and the fact that there was no fire suppression or detection equipment built into the area. Okay, well... The pilots had to guess where the fire was coming from and at no fault of their own incorrectly assumed the air conditioning. Mm -hmm. There was no firefighting plan in place, nor was there any regulation for one at the time. Oh, wow. Finally, it was deemed that due to the fire, the plane had become impossible to fly, a death trap. Mm -hmm. From TSB's final report on the incident, the loss of primary flight displays and a lack of outside visual references forced the pilots to be reliant on the standby instruments for at least some portion of the last minutes of the flight. In the deteriorating cockpit environment, the positioning and small size of these instruments would have made it difficult for the pilots to transition to their use and to continue to maintain the proper spatial orientation of the aircraft. So, thus absolves the pilots from any error. Absolutely. They're a part of the tragedy. And For sure. the last thing anybody needs is to have them uh, incorrectly blamed. Incorrectly. You know. We have seen pilots correctly blamed, but... Oh, absolutely. But uh, uh, they don't need to be uh, thought of in any negative light. Not these guys. No. Oh. Many changes to the MD-11 and aircraft safety in general have come about because of this crash, though... This was at the cost of those 229 lives in the waters of the Atlantic just off Nova Scotia's south shore. Yeah. Memorials for the victim were created near Peggy's Cove and in Bayswater, where some of the remains are buried, on the other side of St. Margaret's Bay from Peggy's Cove. Mm. I went to the Peggy's Cove Memorial when I was in Nova Scotia this year, and I briefly recorded some audio there. Here it is. The memorial today is very foggy and it's quite breezy, cool. I can hear the the waves, but I can't quite see them past the fog. The visibility is about 100 feet. It's very quiet here. Even though there's a lot of tourists around, there is quite a sense of reverence for the memorial. I wanted to come here and, and, and get a real sense of what the place felt like before we talked about it so there you have it hmm well thanks for yeah sharing your thoughts there i'd been to the bayswater memorial before but i hadn't been to the peggy's cove one Mm -hmm. and uh when i got there it was busy it was a busy busy place but but nobody said a word Hmm. even kids there Hmm. were kids around but nobody was saying a word I'd like to believe that it's due to respect. So you would think. Yeah. I, that's that's how I took it. Yeah. 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 The fog did make the place extra eerie. You couldn't really see very far. Uh, I couldn't see the ocean. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I would have had to walk down onto the black rocks that they don't recommend you going on to actually see. Yeah. Last week, a live event took place at the Bayswater Memorial, where first responders, locals, and family members marked the 20th anniversary of this crash. Stephen Thompson, a man whose father died in the crash, attended the memorial. He said, He was my best friend, still to this day, 
whenever I come back or think about it, it brings back memories of that night. But I have some great memories as well. The good memories are what I really focus on, but every now and then it comes back. And that's the way with grief, right? Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly, the over five kilos of diamonds and jewels, the Picasso painting, the millions of dollars worth of, of art and 50 kilos in cash haven't been accounted for. As treasure hunting is illegal in Nova Scotia, I don't know if it will ever turn up publicly, but it was not recovered in the recovery efforts. It's interesting if they, they found 98% of the plane, but... Uh... Right? Who knows? Let the conspiracy people go wild with that one. Yeah, I kind of hope that it uh, is never recovered or if so done by the proper people because I would hate for uh, this tragedy for somebody to be directly profiting from it. And so it'd be great if it was ever found by uh, proper authorities and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, it does seem odd that nothing. Before we go, we mentioned that Christine, one of our Yumberyard folks, one of the good eggs from the Yumberyard, mm -hmm. her aunt was a flight attendant on the plane. Yeah. yeah. So she left behind uh, a younger sister and her husband, two wonderful nephews and uh, her aging mother. And she'd always heard stories about her saying that she seemed so glamorous because she'd been all kinds of places being a, a flight attendant. You yeah. get to travel the world. Yeah, for sure. She never got to meet her because her their families were estranged a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, But she did connect with Patty's sister and her family a few years after the crash. One aftermath of the tragedy is that her sister and her husband would always take separate flights when their boys were young, just in case the plane they were on would crash. Oh, wow. Wow. She couldn't bear the thought of leaving the kids as orphans, so if they were on separate flights, both planes couldn't crash. Patty's sister knew the odds were very, very low, but that's how she coped. Mm. She would also travel with Patty's passport, which was recovered from the wreckage because the odds of the passport experiencing two plane crashes were even more statistically unlikely. Mm, wow. And because they were estranged, they didn't immediately know about Patty's death. Mm. Uh, Patty's sister reached out to uh, Christine's dad because Patty was the only sibling that uh, they had. So I think she felt they needed to connect. Yeah, yeah. Christine goes on to say, I can't help but think that Patty and I would have been kindred spirits, as Anne of Green Gables put it. Her sister told me as much. Oh. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Christine, because that's... Uh, yeah. Uh, it just makes um, this story that more relevant. There are people connected to every single story we tell. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's powerful to hear from... Oh, there's a photo of her, too. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, it just makes it, uh, it just makes it so much more relevant. Yeah. And, uh, a part of the group. So thank you so much for sharing, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. So what, what have you thought about this episode? We're, we're at the end of our script here. It's a very vivid one for me due to the fact that I think I was talking to you before about how for me after 9-11, uh, plane related tragedies are quite vivid for me because we were inundated with movies uh, about 9-11 uh, and documentaries and programs about it. As a species, I would say we really got to kind of become 
much more acquainted with the fear and tragedy involved in these kind of uh, uh, occurrences. And so for me, you know, uh, hearing about this stuff, I almost can kind of feel like I'm there. Yeah. You can, in, in I guess the smallest way, feel what they're feeling and the fear. As you've written it, you, for me, I kind of felt like I was there. And it's uh, it's just so sad, those poor people. Personally, I have a little bit of fear of flying. I don't like taking off. I don't like landing. I don't mind being in the air. Well, those are kind of like important parts of but flying. But those two parts, yeah, the, I loathe. The key parts. Yeah. I think I've told you my emergency landing landing story before. I think so. I don't remember, though. I don't think I've told it here on the podcast, though. In 1994, I had away from Nova Scotia for a year or so, a year and a bit. And so I was going to fly back to see my folks. It was during the Canucks run. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. Get, oh. So it was, it was at that time. Yeah. But I get on the plane, and we're going to Toronto first. The last person brought onto the plane is this person in one of those skinny wheelchairs. Okay. So yeah. they can wheel it down the, the aisle. It's this weird yeah. looking skinny wheelchair. Yeah. And he, he, they plop him directly in front of me. And this man looked as old as Methuselah. <laughs> he was a very, very old man. And I don't know why somebody would have been traveling with this older gentleman at that time. Maybe he was uh, traveling for medical reasons. Yeah. To yeah. go, uh, you know, maybe get a, get a transplant somewhere or, yep. or something like that. Yep. There was a nurse sitting beside him. Yeah. So dressed in a nurse's outfit, which was odd. As we're flying, you know, doing my thing, and I've got this older couple beside me, and I've chatted with them a little bit. Uh, they're very nice. Uh, the lady is sitting directly next to me, and, and the, the older gentleman is sitting next to the window. But I notice some activity in the seats ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And I look... And I, I see the nurse is attending to this gentleman, and she has a very, very, very concerned look on her oh, face. Oh, God. So she pushes the button to call for the, the, the flight attendant. Mm -hmm. The flight attendant comes. Uh, she, too, all of a sudden develops a very concerned look on her face. <laughs> um, and um, so much so, she turns and literally sprints down the aisle toward the cockpit of the plane just needs to get a fan for him i guess so um and it's pre 9 11 so 1994 so she just opens the door closes the door behind her and 40 seconds later i guess she's spent time explaining things to yeah, the pilot yeah. uh the pilot comes on yeah so uh we're gonna be uh making uh a little bit of a detour this evening we're going to be heading to uh regina and I'm thinking, I've never been to Regina before, and I had no reason to go to Regina, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of not liking the idea of a detour. Mm -hmm. And the pilot continues. He says, uh, just so you know, folks, uh, this is going to be a very quick descent into Regina, <laughs> and uh, so we're asking everybody to take uh, emergency positions while, uh, while we uh, make our descent. Oh, we should be in Regina in 10 minutes. So we're at 30,000 feet mm -hmm. and we have to get to like... That's a good chunk of feet. Zero feet. Y yeah. Jesus. We're all told to put our seatbelts on and put our heads down yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So okay. we start descending very quickly uh -huh. and very quickly I began to feel like as though I was lifting off my seat and I was weightless. Yeah, which is what happens with these uh, quick descents. Yes. 
Yeah. And it was very unpleasant. Uh-huh. And the, the lady beside me held my hand harder than it's ever been held before. Jeez. And she's screaming and crying. Yeah. And her husband is trying to console her. And I am wishing somebody was there to console me. Holy shit. And I'm trying to console her at the same time saying, we'll be okay. We'll be, we'll be fine. We get to Regina. <laughs> we land very quickly, bumpily. Mm-hmm. It was very unpleasant. The paramedics were waiting there. They come on. They get the guy off and and everybody cheers, you know, that we made it alive Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pilot prepares us for another ascent and we're off into the great blue yonder again. And and as we're just about to fly into Toronto, the pilot says, "Uh, yeah, folks, I have an update on the uh, patient that uh, we had to take off the plane. He looks like he's going to be just fine. Oh, thank God. And everybody cheers. Yeah. Oh. And he said, and uh, as well, the uh, Canucks have won their hockey game. <laughs> Another <laughs> cheer. Yeah. Uh, only to be followed by a riot. Yeah. Down the road. Yeah, during the next few days. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that was my experience with the crash position anyway, and uh, my first trip to Regina. That sounds pretty uh, pretty. Fantastic, Mike. Yeah. What was really cool, though, was coming into Toronto, seeing a thunderstorm from above the clouds. It was very cool to see, like, these dark clouds and then orange and pink and blue lightning snaking Mm -hmm. through these clouds and lighting it up. It was, if you've never seen a a thunderstorm from above, uh, Google some videos and and you will see a pretty spectacular thing. I can imagine so. I got to see that. I guess that was my prize for... Being a good sport and not shitting my pants. I was going to ask. I did not. Well, not that you're going to admit to. No, I would I would actually admit to well, that. You yeah, no, I shit my pants. Everybody shit their pants at least once. Really? That's, yes. That's a pretty bold statement. Well, you would have been a child at some point. <sighs> that's a, that's, that doesn't count. And you don't have other options. Well, as as also being a recovering alcoholic, sometimes you <laughs> lose control. <laughs> okay, okay, I can, I can. Anyway, so that is our episode. First, before we go, uh, we would like to thank our new patron patrons, and I'm ready with them this year Ooh. or this week. This, also this year. This week. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. This decade. Yeah. So one of our Yumber Yard good eggs, Stephen Martin from Reedville. Mm-hmm. North Carolina, Reedsville, oh. North Carolina. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. Jerry Kennett from Ottawa, Ontario. Jody Peterson from Hamley Bridge in South Australia, also one of our newer Yumber Yarders. Welcome. Carol Murray from Chicago, California. I had to look that up because well, uh, I didn't know there was such a place. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a Canada in Texas. And there's an Ontario somewhere in the States as well. Yeah, I was watching- And New Brunswick and New Jersey and- Watching some true crime show and it was taking place in Canada, Texas, and it was every time they'd like, well, we're driving around in Canada and I'm picturing, well, it's a pretty big place in Canada, but- Yeah. Anyways. And speaking of Texas, thank you to Ivan from Garland, Texas for his support. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for your pledges. We really appreciate it. If you want to donate to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. 
Check out our website, www.darkpatine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Patine and tell your friends. Tell your friends, because that is working pretty well. Yes, it is. Please do. Especially fun is our closed Facebook group, The Umberyard. We are way over 800 now. Yeah. Uh, which Count. is fantastic. The activity is great. The activity is great. Uh, I am I'm starting to lose track of oh. people. Oh, I can't keep track of all the posts. I wake up every day to like 50 notifications, which for me is quite unusual. Yeah, because nobody likes you. Well, that just... You know I don't mean that. That's just... I like you, Scott. That's just a shot to the old heart there, Mikey. Right, Nick. It's like a a squared you one. It doesn't really matter if you like me or not. You're stuck with me. Fair enough. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes, Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. So that's it for this week's Dark Poutine. It is. We'll be back next week for episode 40. Woo! Whoa. Woo! Holy smokes. That's 10 uh, less than 50, Mike. That's 10 less than 50, but we're coming up on 50. Holy shit. I know, right? Wow. Yeah, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary. Yep. Two months away. Halloween. Yep. We'll do something special for Halloween. Yeah. So, all right, folks, as we say usually, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.